like to inspire them to just be your true self. Hello, and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we've got an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala, and today we're talking with Aya Shibi, African Union Youth Envoy. Welcome, Aya. Hi, thank you for having me. No, awesome to have you. So we first heard about you through Apolitical's top 100 most influential young people in government, a list that also includes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I think is everyone's hero at the moment. Could you share with us a few of your role models? Current role models in, in nowadays or like history? Um, I don't know. I think there are many nowadays because we have social media and we can see many women, female leaders that we can look up to. But if I would choose from growing up with very few documented or historically women who are visible, I like Alisa. Alisa is the founder of Carthage, uh, nowadays Tunisia, and uh, she has built up the empire of Carthage. And I look up to her because she was a rebel, uh, grew up and uh, rebelled uh, the tyranny of her brother and uh, left what's today's Lebanon and in the Phoenician time and uh, came to Tunisia and built uh, the most beautiful uh, empire. Amazing. We, we love rebels on this show. So great to hear you give that example. So just a little bit about your background and your origin story. So you first came into the public eye during Tunisia's revolution in 2010-11 and your activism running the Proudly Tunisian blog. And we were wondering, what inspired you to start writing publicly? And and how did it feel when you started to get so much attention for that? Mm -hmm. I think everything I've done was out of frustration. Um, many people say that young people today are angry. And I always say it's it's not about making them not being angry and frustrated, but it's about channeling their energy into something positive. And I think I have been frustrated with different things, including international media portrayal of our revolution. And I heard a lot people say the Arab Spring and um, I was, was starting to advocate that that's a Western narrative. We call it the revolution of dignity. And what does that mean from uh, a Tunisian who have been part of that is one, two, three, and four. Um, so that's how I started. It was really a frustration of how other people, particularly international media, portrayed our movement and, and started to depict things not the way we have been living on the ground. And I started to report kind of what's happening from a Tunisian perspective, from a young female perspective. Um, and that grew little by little with the interaction of people who read my blog to then blog about Africa and the Middle East. Uh, and I started traveling around the continent, mobilizing young people uh, and trying to bridge, to be a bridge, uh, actually, between north of the of the continent and south of the Sahara. How does it feel to, to be, to get attention? I think it felt empowering especially mainstream media because when I got my stories picked up by mainstream media and started to reach other audience for me that was the the goal of why I'm blogging because I don't want our stories to be exceptions but to be mainstreamed so that was 
fulfilling to have the stories getting the attention of international media and having our voice out there, also our version of the story out there. That's incredible. And we actually picked up on something you mentioned there in our research, which was your describing of it as the evolution of dignity. And that's a phrase that really started to make sense to us. And particularly talking about being a bridge between North and South is is really interesting. We also noticed that you worked at a refugee camp during that time. What was that like, especially at that young age? And what did you learn from it? Yeah, my experience in the refugee camp was an eye-opening to questioning my African identity. So when we started the revolution in Tunisia, the revolution in Libya started as well. And then we had refugees coming on the Tunisian-Libyan borders. And I had my father who worked in the army at the time. So I went there for just one day where we organized some donations, but I ended up staying for a month because I met uh, migrants from all over Africa who were working in, in Libya. And for me, it was like, the whole continent in one place, uh, spending time listening to stories of about Senegambia and about the Liberian civil war and about all of the cultural um, aspects in Ghana and other parts of the continent. So it, it was really an eye opening for me to start questioning what is my connection with the continent? How are we linked to it? On another side as well, because eventually peace building and nonviolence and all this field became very close to my heart, moving forward with my activism. And I think being in the refugee camp and seeing people survival every day, starting to do peace education for kids who lost a lot of their time in the camp and one year of their education and so on, was also kind of a, a trigger for me to go into the path of peace activism and trying to, to help or contribute to a better world that is peaceful and equal and where we all really care about our humanity rather than all the misogyny and conflict and, and what we are living today. That's so interesting. And related, speaking of the peace activism you've done, we saw from our research that you're the first youth envoy for the African Union. And one of your mandates is to empower and mobilize young people across Africa towards the Agenda 2063 mission. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what the Agenda 2063 mission is all about? Yes, indeed. I am, uh, I am now the first uh, African Union youth envoy, a position that we have lobbied for youth-led movements and feminist movements and civil society in general have um, advocated for this to exist because Africa has the most youthful population in the world, about 70% of our population is under 30. So it makes total sense that we have a youth voice at the union. Among my um, mandate is Agenda 2063, which is uh, African Union agenda that was adopted in 2013. All the member states agreed on an agenda for the next 50 years while they were celebrating already 50 years since independence and since the formation of the Organization of African Union. So this agenda has seven aspirations that touches on what is the Africa we want? How do we want to see this Africa in 50 years? And touches on African identity, on peace and security, on Africa being a global player, and so on and so forth. And it really intersects in its aspirations with a lot of the sustainable development goals, the 2030 agenda as well. So my role is really to try to popularize this agenda and make young people own it because uh, this generation and the next generation is the one that will lead this agenda and will live 
the results of working towards this agenda. But also there is a lot of hype and uh, progress on on SDGs that we want to bring to Agenda 2063, which is African uh, agenda. Wow, that sounds like a lot of work. And so sort of semi-related, we watched a vlog recently about struggling to deal with burnout and failure, which you made. And I think this is a big challenge that especially a lot of young people face. How do you reconcile those feelings of burnout with your role in leadership? Yeah, very good question. I run a kind of a brand called Radical Aya and I do diaries. And one of the diaries I talked about failure because I I have been through that and I did not want to recognize it. And I moved on, you know, with my busy activism and nonstop not having a vacation, not, you know, just stopping and reflecting on what I'm doing because I just knew my mission and every day I know what I'm doing. But eventually, if you don't have self-care, you get to the point of burnout. When I run for this um, position of the youth envoy, because it's it's not just an appointment, you have to apply for it. 708 people submitted application. We went through a process of selection, interview, and so on. And part of why I did that, even though I come from an activist background, and it's a huge decision for me to move on to diplomacy and to what I'm doing right now, is to show young people that you can be in, in decision um, decision-making positions that you deserve. You can be in leadership position that you deserve by merit. Um, but you have to also just be your truthful self, you know? So when I portray myself now in this position, I'm not, you know, going with the protocol and, you know, being inaccessible to young people. I continue doing what I am doing, but showing a little bit young people that you can be your truthful self, doing whatever blogs I'm doing, showing the other part of my life, talking about failure in in university, talking about taking four years gap before my master's and things that is the everyday life of young people. Because when they see just you uh, talking to member states, or they think about how did you become that? (laughs) But um, moving into that, there is a lot of tips and things and mentoring that we can benefit from in order to be healthy, to be balanced, uh, to take care of ourselves, to love ourselves, especially as women, because it's it's a double crime to be young and to be a woman in today's world. So I try to do that. I also run a mentorship program. I mentor 10 young people every year between 15 and 25 years old. And it's also a way of trying to show them how to take care of yourself and how to Always take your strength from being your truthful self, the best version of yourself every day. And that can only happen if you really take care of yourself and find every day the time to, I don't know, meditate, uh, to read, to write, to spend time with your loved ones, to take a break so you don't reach those moments of, uh, of burnout. And failure is also fine, you know, like when you fail, it's also okay to fail. It's just how you have to stop, recognize that and see what you can learn. So you can move forward. Yeah, we talk a lot on this podcast about bringing your whole self to work. And it just struck me there that when you have a role that is very outward facing and where you have to use a lot of social media to disseminate your message, that must bring a whole new level of truth to that being vulnerable in front of a lot of people. So massively good on you for doing that. So you've lived and studied in places all around the world. And obviously your youth envoy role now includes a lot of travel. How has doing that shaped your perspective on life? Very good question. I actually lived my childhood like a nomad because my father 
uh, used to work in the army for 40 years. And that means that we need to move from a city to another in Tunisia every two to three years. So I ended up studying in maybe eight different schools from the very north of Tunisia to the very south. And I lived uh, as an only child as well. So I I had to um, find my place in every new school I go into. And I think that shaped me a lot. And that made it much more easier when I started traveling the world because I could see the diversity, the mosaic of Tunisia, and I could fit in, in our different culture because it's even as tiny as Tunisia, it's a very multicultural society. So when I started traveling around the world, especially in Africa, when I took three years traveling to almost 30 countries, I could feel home in every place I go to because I think I was just prepared for that. Uh, I lived like a nomad and I continue it like that. So traveling now, and it's not a difficult task <laughs> as the envoy. I think I the, the only difference perhaps is that I'm going to be meeting more heads of states and policymakers and uh, people in, in decision-making positions more maybe than I used before. But when I used to travel for blogging or for organizing, for trainings, I used to meet young people from all sorts of backgrounds from all walks of lives and it just feels home in every corner and I think the secret to that is only to maybe grow up accepting the other that is different from you regardless of what that difference is if it's religion if it's skin color if it's lifestyle if it's political affiliation whatever that is when you are in relationship with the other you just have to accept their difference and to have a conversation or to collaborate or whatever that will put you together in one space to live that moment. So I think I enjoy the nomad life. I, sometimes I tell my mom that I cannot be protective if I don't travel at least once <laughs> once a month because also moving to places um, trigger my creativity and brings a lot of ideas to my mind. And I write most of my speeches in between planes as well. My inspiration is really that moment of moving, you know, like I on the move. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that idea of a brand, Aya, on the move. Wicked. So speaking of blogging and your conversations with people from all sorts of backgrounds, obviously you've harnessed the internet throughout your work a lot. So social media and online communication tools, when you're advocating for change and sharing people's stories. Something we read that you wrote about, though, was that 48% of the world's population are offline. So how do you think we can consider digital inclusion whilst also making the best of what technology has to offer? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's one of the most ironic contradictions of our time that we have this huge digital gap. Half of the world's population is offline. Obviously, the internet has changed radically the way we interact, the way we process information and so on. And for me, it gave me a lot of power living under dictatorship and not being able to express yourself. And uh, even the internet was censored in Tunisia before 2011. So it was that space of self-expression. And I think it's a very powerful space. If we see people who change their policies or react 
even people in decision-making react to a tweet, then it means social media is powerful and internet is powerful. Now, is it exclusive? Is it elitist? Yes, it is. And it is a very privileged space. In some countries, it's a dangerous space to be online. And so we need to democratize that. And that is not just the work of people who are, you know, cyber activists. It's the responsibility of government, it's the responsibility of public sector in making internet more accessible. And I think internet is part of a conversation of equality, because if we are talking about who have access to internet and whose voice heard online, it also affects your economic situation, affects your social status, your political participation. So we made a little bit of progress the last two years, but it's not accelerated as fast as how people are benefiting from internet. And sadly, it is also in our part of the world. So most people who are out of the online space are in Africa and the Middle East. So what we can just do is to continue bringing stakeholders together, government, companies, and citizens to make sure that we democratize the online space. Absolutely. And hearing you speak there really reminded me of all of the privilege that we have and really feeling grateful for that. And following that theme of power, it'd be great to talk about what you think that means for young people. So with the number of young people going to double in the next decade, and as you mentioned, Africa being the world's youngest nation, how do you see the opportunity to democratize that? Yeah, the power of young people is that is two things. One, that one needs to realize the power of their voice, that their voice matter, and that they have to stand up for what is right and for their own cause. And two is the word has to listen to the youth and not listen to them in a tokenistic way or talk about them or talk at them. Really talk with young people and listen to what they're saying. Because if you, especially in Africa, if you look at any problem on the continent, young people are at the forefront of being impacted by that, whether they're migrants, whether they're refugees, uh, whether they're indigenous, whatever, whether they're females, whatever identity they have, they are the first to be affected. So it doesn't make any sense at all now today to get the solution from just, you know, research papers and sitting in offices. The solution comes from people who are the most impacted and those people are the youth. So one is the youth have to realize their power and claim it and raise their voice. But on the other hand, uh, the political discourse has to change as well and become a discourse of empowerment. Many young people internalize the idea that they're marginalized. And we see that with violent extremism. If you tell youth, continue, continuously tell them you are victims, you are, you know, unemployed, you are this and that. Many youth internalize it and you see them dying in the Mediterranean. Why would someone be willing to go on a boat knowingly that they will die halfway? if they're not internalizing the idea that their life is over and they cannot do anything in their society. If the political discourse changes to a discourse of empowerment, that you can contribute to society, that you have a voice and you have a say in your present and your future, then also many young people who are on that negative side or the frustration and anger going into negative energy can be transformed into something positive. Definitely. And we see that conversation about identities quite a lot in the conversations that we've had. And I, I love that idea that we can change the discourse to one of empowerment. And we were reading lots of ways in which you've described yourself. So from a Tunisian, African, Muslim, Arab woman to a pan-African feminist activist. 
And we, we loved all the multiple identities that you're describing there in, in one person. And we're wondering, what does it mean to you to have all of these different elements? I think I am lucky. I am lucky. And I think the word is so absurd to think that our diversity is a source of our problems and our conflicts and our xenophobia. I think I'm lucky. I'm, I am I am so rich to be able to speak three languages, to be able to understand different cultures, to have multi-layers of identities, to, f- to feel being able to contribute if I'm in the Mediterranean or if I go to the Middle East or if I travel across Africa. It's it's a blessing. It's a blessing to have. And I, I derive my power from that. And that's how I always say I'm a bridge because I see that I can communicate with different people depending on our cultural commonality or linguistics or religious or, or whatever that is. But sadly, today the world sees that as something that uh, is divisive, as something that, uh, you know, we need to box people into certain stereotypes and that needs to change. We need to embrace our layers and fluid identities and be able to use them uh, to come together in collaboration, to come together in coexistence, uh, to intermarriage, to, you know, do all sorts of amazing stuff and to make this word so colorful. Yeah, and talking about having a colorful world, um, one of the things that we loved finding was your Instagram at Radical Air, where you share loads of awesome quotes and cool photos. One of the things you talk about on that is being radical and thriving in trouble. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about how you can do that for yourself? The the idea of being radical, I mean, I claim that word because, you know, being radical today is very much a negative connotation. Uh, we talk a lot about people being radicalized into violent extremism and things like that. But being being young is, is eventually being radical because you think outside of the box and you do things always out of the conventional way. So this is who we are as youth. It's it's by definition being radical. But that does not mean being extremist. That means being your most truthful self. And I always say in radical Aya, find your true self and live it. So don't try to be like someone else or don't try to fit certain stereotype or, or uh, you know, certain box that you are put in. No, speak your mind, uh, live your, your everyday fulfilled. And maybe that's why back to, to, to what you said about depression or burnout or things like that is when also people end up doing things they don't want to do and are being unhappy and unfulfilled, even though they have the job, they, you know, they have the lifestyle they wanted and so on. But truly inside, are you expressing your true self every day maybe not and you need to start thinking about that so radical aya for me is trying to to inspire people especially young women again because we live uh, you know in a very patriarchal uh, society that oppresses women the most but i'd like to inspire them to just be your true self express yourself in your artistic way uh in in whatever image you, you want and i and i man, well if you see my radical aya feed it's really like the cool side of me you know like people think i'm really serious when i'm giving a speech or you know sitting working my laptop in focus but that's me you know uh, that's part of me being serious about what i do but also that cool side of me is who i am every day and how i live and I encourage a lot of young people to do that, to not try to fit any um, 
any other label or any other box, but to find their true self and live it. And as you said as well, the, the internet is now the place that can kind of take all the masks from people, you know? So whatever you do, whatever you post is archived and that shows who you are. So, you know, some people now can go back 10 years later and tell you, you said that, or that was your position on this. And this is, I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing that all the masks are going down from people's faces and we see more the true um, faces of everyone. So why not be someone else? Why to be someone else? Why not be your own self and create your own identity? So I enjoy a lot Radical Aya, yeah. <laughs> yeah, everyone should follow it. It is really cool. And I think with the political leaders that we're seeing at the moment that are admired, like AOC, you're seeing a lot more of that truthful self being shown over places like social media. So that is great. You spoke earlier about traveling and you sort of said that you're a nomad when you're traveling and um, obviously nomads take their home with them. What are the top three things that you travel with that make it feel more like home? Um, I take a lot of things, but yeah, mostly my flag. That's not about being nationalist, <laughs> but I like to have something on the wall wherever I, I travel. I take harissa, which is, um, it's a Tunisian spicy. You can't find it anywhere and I can't eat food that is not spicy. Um, and I take some pictures of, of people that I love. Yeah. Amazing. I'm a huge fan of Harissa. So great to hear you say that. have to try some from Tunisia sometime. Great. Um, so we just have a couple of closing questions and thoughts we'd love to get from you um, to recommend a couple of things for our listeners. So first, can you recommend a podcast that we should listen to? Uh, there is this one I've been listening to recently, the Mothers of Invention podcast uh, with, with Mary Robinson. I met Mary Robinson a couple of times and I love her. And she's one of the female leaders I look up to. And I like to see more and more female in leadership. So she's doing this really cool uh, podcast, Mothers of Invention. Great female in leadership. Absolutely. And how about a Twitter account? Uh, Twitter account is really hard, but I would maybe promote uh, a movement, a youth movement, Africa youth movement, and I would say at Africa with K Y M. Great, we'll check them out. And how about a book? A book, I think anything written by Ali Mazrui is amazing. Um, I've been reading recently Africa Redefined. It's all about Pan Africanism and African identity. So to know more about uh, the complexity of Africans, read Ali Mizroi. Thank you. And how about to finish us off a uh, charity or a social enterprise we should donate to and support? Can I also be selfish on this one? <laughs> I'll promote Afresist, which is a new social enterprise that promotes African leadership and documents youth work in Africa. So please donate. <laughs> Great, we will do. Thank you. Aya, thank you so much for chatting with us. We've really loved hearing you speak so passionately about your work and you've given us so much inspiration. Um, I'm sure Kamala will say the same. We feel freshly encouraged in our power as young women to change the world for the better. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Cool. Yeah, thank you both. Thank you for doing this. It's, uh, I think it's important. So I'll be listening more and more to a podcast. I'm a new fan. <laughs> 
So Kamala, what did you reckon of our AOC of Africa? Oh my God, I knew that it was going to be an awesome interview when we asked her for a hero that she had. And she talked about Alicia, the founder of Carthage, and how she rebelled against her brother and built Tunisia. And at that point, I was like, wow, we're going to be learning some serious stuff in this interview. What did you think? Yeah, absolutely. I'll be completely honest with our listeners and say that we totally lucked out with this interview. When we contacted Aya and asked if she would come on the show, I was really not expecting a response. So just the fact that she even came on to talk to us was so cool. And also our first guest working in Africa was awesome. And to get that perspective, particularly around what's happening in Africa at the moment with the union and the work that she's doing with 2063 was wicked. What did you think about her shift from the activism world to diplomacy. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And especially how she's obviously working as a youth envoy. And she talked about how whatever decisions are made now, the youth are going to have to live those decisions and own those decisions. And so I just was really happy that A, that role was created And B, there's someone as compelling as Aya to lead in that space. What did you think? Yeah, I got a bit of a sense that it had been quite a difficult decision for her to to make that move. And I can completely understand why, because all of the stuff she told us at the beginning about the incredible work she did when she was so young herself, um, particularly going to work in the refugee camps and doing all of the incredible activism, especially online, was must have felt so incredibly motivating and you know had the ability to do stuff radically differently and shifting into a space where she's now representing in a in a more formal sense and attending you know lots of kind of international meetings with diplomats from around the world and let's be honest she's she doesn't look like a lot of those other people do in that world and she's come from a space where she must have led quite a you know strong diverse group of young people into one where it's predominantly male and predominantly older um must have must have been a real challenge but she's really done well at acknowledging openly how difficult that was and some of her struggles with feelings of burnout and things like that what did you think of that part of the interview yeah, I thought that part of the interview was one that really stuck with me. I think that as we asked her, a lot of people feel that sense of burnout. And for the work that she's doing, that must be even more so. I thought that her advice of taking time for self-care and making sure that you have time to rest and also being truthful about that online and sharing those stories more widely was really compelling. What did you think? Yeah, to be honest, I have absolutely no idea how she finds any time to do the mindfulness stuff and to to think about looking after her own health because she's so incredibly busy. Some of my favorite parts of that interview was when she was talking about being a nomad and how because she was so used to that when from when she was younger and her dad was in the military. And she is so comfortable in that world where she can make her home anywhere. And I loved what she was saying about that triggering, especially creativity and also being really productive. 
I find that something that's true of myself as well. Often when I'm in between places or I have some quiet time where you're focused, especially on a flight or something where you really have no other option apart from to to sit and do you know something reflective or have some quiet time or watch something. Often having those times essentially forced on you because you don't have any other choice can give you the space to think in a ironic way. And also her talking about otherness and her upbringing and that sense of always finding ways to connect across difference just came through so strongly. And I was incredibly impressed by that. Oh, yeah, that bit where she was like, oh, I just feel so incredibly lucky to be able to speak three languages and to be able to move through these different circles. That was wild to me. I thought that was so interesting. And also the fact that she obviously sees that as a strength, as I think a lot of young people do. Um, What did you think about that stat about 48% of people in the world being offline? I was absolutely blown away by that stat. I had no idea. And I feel pretty embarrassed that I didn't. I can't believe that I've worked in the tech sector for this long and didn't even realize it was close to that. And what was particularly interesting about that number, I think, was that it's the 48% is particularly felt in not only in Africa, but also in people who are traditionally disadvantaged anyway, and young people as well. And that's why it feels like her work, especially with youth advocacy and, you know, using technology to its its best end is so important. And like you said, really thinking about that sustainability element in terms of the young people being those ones of the future who are going to be designing and building and, you know, creating the tech that we have in 50 years time. And it's up to them to really take ownership of that. And she did such a good job, I thought, of just being incredibly inspirational and encouraging the youth of today to take that step and just be proud about their experiences and what they have to bring to the table. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that she talked about a lot was around the fact that social media has allowed a lot of, especially young people, to own their own narratives. And what was wild to me about that 48% is that that literally means that 48% of people don't have their stories told and they aren't able to own the narrative that they live. And so it just made me think how important that work is to continue to try and get more people online um, so that we can hear from them too. Yeah, definitely. That did come through throughout the interview at this sense of being able to share people's stories and especially people that traditionally wouldn't be heard of through more common routes of media or of story sharing in general. And I agree, I completely thought that was one of the best parts. And towards the end, some of my favorite wrap ups ever was when we were talking about her Instagram account, which if you haven't already checked out, you totally should because it's completely badass and cool. Yeah, definitely follow immediately. I, I um, have instituted a bit of an Instagram ban during the week because I just spent so much time scrolling and no time doing anything else. But I um, came off that just to check out this Instagram account and then immediately back on. It's just so cool. It's awesome. And what was great about it was that she was saying, you know, that is her as much as her more sort of formal presence is her as well. And that she encourages the people that she mentors, which, by the way, mentoring 10 to 15 people a year, I feel totally underperforming in terms of helping other people to get into these kinds of careers. So I'm going to take a step up myself. 
Yeah, absolutely. I was like, 10 to 15 people, that is amazing. And I thought the thing about Instagram was really interesting because I think, as I said during the interview, we're seeing a lot more uh, diversity in leadership, especially in the US at the moment. So uh, citing AOC and the US Congress. And what we're really seeing as a point of difference between the new leadership coming up and the old leadership is really a sense of authenticity and being honest with the people that you're sharing with. And I, I really got that AOC flavor when I was checking out her Instagram account. Yeah, the AOC of Africa, or maybe AOC is the, the Aya of the US. And that's it from the One Team Gov Show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.